something like Bitcoin would come up that's important, but it's not the only thing. Most people like there's really there's a category. There are five categories that are really important to people. It's family. It's spirituality. There's creativity. It's your community and it's your place in the world. Right. So for some people, right, Bitcoin kind of falls into community because it's, it is their community. And maybe it also falls into place if you like you would. This comes to mind, right, of Bitcoin Blue Collar podcast. Right. Your place in the world is providing this as a service for people. Right. In addition to all the other things that you do. But that's two of five. Right. There's still family, spirit, spirituality and creativity. Um, and yeah, maybe you can say, okay, I'm creative in the Bitcoin space too. But like, okay, now there's family and there's spirituality, right? There's still other aspects of your life think, that uh, are Bitcoin going to be arguably is filling the spirituality gap for some <laughs> folks. <laughs> I think that it shouldn't be though, right? I guess that's kind of what I'm alluding to here right there. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Today, we had the pleasure of speaking to Morgan Richard. Morgan is a certified financial planner and advisor. She runs her own investment management firm, Origin Wealth Advisors which is an independent wealth management firm taking wealth management back to its origins. Not heavily traded, fees being totally disclosed and reasonable, and the portfolio manager standing for the client. Morgan is also the author of the book, Personal Finance Quick Start Guide. She's also working on a follow-up book that focuses specifically on Bitcoiners. With Morgan, we dive heavily into personal finance. She is a fountain of knowledge regarding personal financial behavior, debt management, budgeting, and Bitcoin products available in retirement portfolios. We think this conversation can be a huge help for people. Financial health is all about consistency. Training yourself for healthy financial behavior is paramount, and Morgan is just the advisor to assist in that regard. When you do have your financial house in order, and you are stacking Bitcoin in this bear market as a proper Bitcoiner should, we highly recommend you get yourself a cold card Mark IV to safely tuck those sats away. The cold card is the industry standard for security. Don't trust your Bitcoin to a lesser signing device. If you already have your Bitcoin nestled safely on a cold card, take a look at some of the other tantalizing offerings CoinKite has. The Block Lock, that beautiful Bitcoin timepiece to place on your Bitcoin shrine. The new Block Lock Micro, same thing as the Mini, just in a smaller form factor. The Open Dime, time-tested and Bitcoiner-approved Bitcoin bearer storage. And let's not forget about the brand new SATS card. Use our code BCB to receive 5% off your order on cold card Mark III or Mark IV. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Morgan, welcome on BCB. Uh, how are you today? I'm doing well, thanks. How are y'all? We're good. Doing really well. Dan's got a new background there. What's going on, Dan? Um, yeah, it's been an interesting day, exciting day in the household, but a little bit interesting getting a new roof. Thank you, Hailstorm. Nice. And uh, it literally sounds like the Normandy landings in my entire house right now, including my basement where my quote unquote studio is. So I am in my mother-in-law's backyard. Uh, I came over to the mother-in-law's house, figuring it would be a good safe haven. 
The backyard looked appealing. Several mature oaks, uh, beautiful landscape back here. Decided to kind of go Marty Bent backyard. Little concerned now that I'm back here. Uh, traffic, a train came by recently. Acorns have been dropping on the deck itself, which is quite loud. So Making um, friends with squirrels there? Yep. He's but actually holding it, a squirrel right now if you're not watching if you're watching yeah. on YouTube. So Dan is the only, you're the only guy I know that would escape to your mother-in-law's house. <laughs> yeah, she's not <laughs> like, here. That is the last she, place. I'd she be is, uh, she is going. working right now. So hence me calling it a safe haven. All right. And, yeah, um, and the Blitzkrieg going on on your roof. Yep. Yep. Um, and then the other thing, just as a warning, Morgan is like, Josh and I are sick of each other right now. We just got off of a 48 hour <laughs> shift together. So we're whole we work 24 on 48 off. We're at the same department. Josh worked overtime on my shift at my station. Then I worked overtime on his shift at his station. So we just got off of 48 hours together about six hours ago. Completely sick of listening to this voice. So, <laughs> yeah, hopefully you talk as much as you can, because if I hear Josh say another word, I'm going to lose my freaking mind. Morgan, yeah. how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I should just, I guess, keep going so you guys don't have to hear each other's voices. Yeah, you just take it from here. We'll uh, <laughs> take it from here. So my go um, the bathroom real quick. Yeah, my in-laws do live close by as well. And my parents, actually, they bought a home down here. We um, So I'm originally from New York, but my parents, because we moved down here and we've got kids and they want to see the kids, they were like, oh, yeah, we're going to move there. They bought a house. And then my dad was like, meh, I'm not into retiring. So they basically have this empty home that's 10 minutes from our house. So in your situation, I could actually escape to my mm -hmm. parents' house because it's literally empty. It's got a bed on the floor, a Costco table, and two folding chairs. Like that's when perfect. they go and sleep there, yeah, it's like they're like frat kids, like on the floor with their <laughs> red solo cups drinking wine. You know, <laughs> they don't even have a like a working television. It's kind of crazy over there. Yeah, it sounds like perfect for podcasting when your roof's getting redone. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah, it's an edge case, but you know, it's a consideration when you when you're a podcaster. Just have exactly. a backup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Morgan, give us a little background on you, the Richard family, your background and journey into Bitcoin. Introduce yourself to our audience here. Yeah, sure. So um, I have a firm called Origin Wealth Advisors. It's a registered investment advisory firm. It's about eight years old now. Um, we mostly deal with Bitcoiners, actually. We deal with um, Bitcoin professionals who uh, have been in Bitcoin for the last at least two years, for the most part, is who's coming in, um, who have lots of financial planning questions. Um, mm -hmm. They realize that uh, the trope Bitcoin fixes this does fix a lot of things, but it doesn't entirely fix their financial situation. So um, the folks that we have coming through now are are like true Bitcoiners, which is like just such a joy for me. Um, and that's not how my practice started, for sure, because it's been around for eight years and we weren't exactly doing Bitcoin things back then. Um, but it's been a slow evolution into Bitcoin for sure. I first started advising on um, Bitcoin positions in 2016 for clients. Um, and it kind of exploded from there. It was like one or two in 2016. Then more people were asking in 2017 with the run up. A lot of people were asking in 2018, like, is this dead? What's going on? And then in 2020, um, like whoever we could get on board, we did get on board. And by 2020, we were like, OK, that's it. We're just going to get we're mass getting our clients on board with Bitcoin, whether they like it or not type of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where my practice is. Um, I also run a consulting practice um, where I advise on Bitcoin and Bitcoin only and not investments around Bitcoin. Um, and in that consulting practice. We either do just um, individual Bitcoin advice or also financial advisors are now coming to me and asking how to implement this in their practice. Um, so that's nice. something I offer there as well. 
Um, I have a book. <laughs> it's called the Personal Finance Quick Start Guide. Um, and I'm working on another book. Um, there's been a huge outpouring of people asking me for a Bitcoin financial planning book. So um, I guess this is a, an, a call to ask of people. If you are interested in a Bitcoin financial planning book, I am doing research on people like you and would love to interview you and hear your point of view and perspective of what you need out of this book. Um, Ooh. because I want I think to you can exactly... just finish this by interviewing that you interview yeah. us for that and that'll just <laughs> exactly. knock this out of the park for the rest of yeah. the episode. Write the book and then move yeah. on. Yeah. yeah. And then start promoting the book. So yeah. So that's another thing that's going on. I'm hoping to get this book out in the next, you know, six months to a year. We'll see how it goes. Um, but yeah, my whole point in it was that if I can do a lot of really good research on what Bitcoiners actually need, then the book will be really what people want rather than like what I think people want. Mm. So, um, that's my hope there. Um, regarding the family, I mean, I've got my husband is Pierre Rochard. Um, we've been Bitcoin. I mean, he's been a Bitcoiner longer than me, but I, he turned me into a Bitcoiner in 2013. Um, he he's even got gave a me a to do that. Yeah, we've been together since 2013. It wasn't okay. a hard, it wasn't a hard sell though. I was already a gold bug and into Austrian economics. So him being like, "Hey, look at this new money that's kind of like gold." It wasn't, it wasn't really that hard for me to go. Oh yeah, like I'd rather own that than gold. Yeah, that's a um, short step. Yeah. So a very different, I think, introduction for a spouse into Bitcoin than most people have with theirs. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I've been in Bitcoin now, I guess, almost a decade. So it's just kind of cool. Um, and definitely felt like at the time that I was late to the party. But now, you know, I'm feeling like I've been around for a while. <laughs> yeah. We we have to crack the obligatory Richard chair joke. I'm sorry, but are you sitting on a chair? And if so, why? Because the price yeah. right now is what, 18 or 19,000? Yeah, you guys should yeah. use, shouldn't have an we SM7B. There's a lot of I cheap know, microphones on Amazon. Always yelling at us about the chairs. Yeah, I do have a chair, but in fairness, I don't sit all the way back on my chair. I like to try to like get good posture going. So I don't know if that okay. matters or what, but yeah, I guess it still does mean that I spent sats on my chair. Yeah. Uh, by the way, posture wise, just to chime in on this, I'm actually in the exact opposite boat today. I usually am um, quite upright in the setup <laughs> I have in my basement, but I'm more relaxed and reclined, so to speak, right now. And I'm kind of digging it. I'm thinking about yeah. maybe changing my podcasting posture. We'll see. This will be my <laughs> trial. Um, what, what did you do before? You're a CFA, right? What did you do before starting your practice? Yeah, so I have a CFA and a CFP. Um, before starting my practice, I worked at two large wirehouses. I was at Merrill Lynch for a couple of years and at UBS, um, basically managing high net worth portfolios on large private wealth teams. I liked what I was doing and I just didn't like where I was doing it. Mm. So um, in 2014, I just I pulled the plug on all of it. I was looking for other roles, trying to get involved, still working for somebody and trying to be a little more hands on with clients. Um, and they just weren't really popping up for me. And this is kind of a stupid reason to start a business. But there was this guy I know who I took the CFA with. And he was like, I started my own registered investment advisor. And I'm like, that guy can start a registered investment advisor? Like, come on, I could do that. Um, so, so like within a couple of weeks, I had like filed for registration and everything else and went out on my own. Um, and thankfully, did a really good job on the personal finance side of managing expenses, reducing expenses, giving myself enough runway, um, and also really timing everything so that like in my in my view, I needed to have my business be three years old before we had our first child, mm -hmm. which which I actually did do almost to the to the to the day. Um, not realizing that once your business is three years old, actually you're more busy. 
because <laughs> you've got like a good, um, yeah. good running and everything, a lot of clients and so forth. So, um, but yeah, in my head, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to get like critical mass and at three years, I'll have my first baby and everything's going to be great. So yeah, so that's kind of how Origin Wealth Advisors was born. It's gone through many different changes, I would say. Mm-hmm. It first started as more of a portfolio management style, like really like hedge fund wannabe type um, business where it was stock picking and running portfolios and really tr- like more investment management. Um, and what I found from clients coming in was that they really required a lot more planning and a lot more like nuanced looks at what was going on in their financial situ- system uh, or situation to make the right decisions about where they needed to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so from there, the the focus in the practice became more planning focused. Um, and now it's extremely planning focused. I have something called the registered life planner designation. Um, and life planning is a process by which we take people through these three series of meetings where we cast a really wide net on what's important to them. We narrow it down and help them prioritize. And then we knock out any obstacles that might get in their way of having a vision of really quite a nice life of what they want. And it's not prescriptive on our side. It's really client-led, client-driven to make sure that they're really focusing on what they want to focus on, and then we just help them support that in their finances. Beautiful. When people come to you and are looking for advice financially, what are some of the low-hanging fruit items that you generally look for first? Like um, people that just maybe have a mess of finances, just for advice for people listening to this, what would you, what, what are the first places you would tend to look for in, you know, the easy things to fix first and then fixing behavior and on and on to free up people's cash flow to get them in a better financial position. Yeah. So the two metrics I would look at first are savings rate and how high are your large fixed expenses. Um, Those two numbers are going to be really indicative of how well somebody is doing financially. Just because if your savings rate isn't particularly high, if I go to that large fixed expense number, you can almost see right away, hey, yep. you're spending 35 plus percent of your income on your house like or whatever else you're, and your car and this and that. Like, how did you possibly expect to have anything else left over? Um, so the savings rate, what we like to see is are people who have at least 20 percent or more of pre-tax income. Ideally, it's actually around 22 and a half percent. The numbers work out that even if you start with zero, so not negative net worth, but if you start with zero net worth and you are able to save 22.5% of your income, you will be retired in 20 years if you focus all of that money towards retirement. Most people aren't able to focus 100% of their savings towards retirement. Mm. But again, it gives people some sort of flexibility of, okay, if I am saving 22% of my pre-tax income or more, and I tend to have, and I want to have, you know, X, Y, Z amount of a working life, then I know actually I will be able to af- to afford the other goals that I have um, or want to do in my life. The savings rate, I would say, is the most important thing because it affords you the most flexibility. So, for instance, I have a client in my practice right now who they're in the process of selling their condo. They're having trouble selling this condo for a bunch of reasons that are kind of irrelevant to them, actually, more having to do with the condo association and everything else. So they're in a situation where they need to lower the price probably by about fifty to $75,000, something like that. For a lot of people, right, if you're not doing all the other things in your financial plan, lowering the price of a large asset sale would significantly affect your financial plan. But because Mm. they are currently saving 30% of their pre-tax income, it's actually irrelevant. Like them needing to lower the price by that amount only extends their working life by like a year and a half. So it's a good way of looking at it because people, I think people think like, oh, if I make the right investment decision or if I do X, Y, and Z thing, then I don't have to work on that other aspect of my financial plan that's really hard the generating savings aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Like if I can just find the thing that'll be 
be a thousand X, right? Then I won't need to worry about this part. But this part of the equation, the part where it where you really truly are creating a positive, a good, healthy, positive cash flow is the most significant thing you could do for your financial situation. Amen. Yeah. I mean, we I off the start, I can tell you this episode is near and dear to our heart. Like these topics are simple. They're not sexy but they are the foundation of everything. You know, we were saying before we clicked record, like Bitcoin, you know, and you alluded to it a second ago, like Bitcoin doesn't solve all your freaking problems. And (laughs) there's so many things you need to have in order to be able to stack, withstand, and maintain a strong, even Bitcoin balance, right, Mm -hmm. through time. Like, um, I'm actually, my attention's drawn to Bitcoin Tina, who this week, like the drama, in the Bitcoin yeah. maxi space is Bitcoin Tina saying that he sold some of his Bitcoin. And we were, you know, commenting to Tina, like, we get it, dude. You're reliant on your balance sheet. You're at retirement age. If you don't have a right-sized allocation, you're going to have no allocation, which is basically mm-hmm. his point. It's And so there's that component. Then there's the whole just, like, quality of life. Like, as you were talking a minute ago, free cash flow eliminates so much stress in your life. If you're completely reliant, and not that we shouldn't be attuned to and and focused on growing money via investments, but if you're totally reliant on the performance of what you've set aside and you have no plan into perpetuity, that's no way to live a stress-free life. And, and, And then with that, and something else Josh and I talk about a lot, is just the way that society is conditioned to consume and spend. I mean, this this notion of having even, you know, you, you threw out 20% free cash flow is very unorthodox in a lot of people's mm-hmm. minds just because people have been conditioned away from it. So I'm just looking forward to, to chatting about some nuts and bolts about financial behavior. Like when you when yeah. you explain what you do, it almost to me, it's like, yeah, you're a wealth advisor, but you're almost like a therapist for people too. Because this all goes back to individual behavior, outlook, uh, motivation, and um, all of that's really internal. Uh, Do you kind of see that? Do you see that that way? Like it's almost like becomes a little bit of a therapy session when you have a new client in your office. I see it less as therapy and more like coaching because therapy to me is like for people who are sick in some way or another. Mm. And maybe that's the wrong way of looking at it. But people, the people who come to me, they're not sick, right? They're not Um, They just have aspects of their life that they're not perfect, um, and nor should they be, right? We're all human beings. We're not perfect. But there are aspects of their life that not only are they not perfect, but they're actually a thorn um, and something that they do want to change. And so when we have people like that come in, it's not not so much therapy as much as giving them the energy to get that thorn out of their side. So in a way, yeah, I guess you could describe it as therapy, but I like to think of it more as just like – you know, like the coach on the sidelines is like, come on, you got this. Let's do this. You can cross the finish line, you know, or like the coach where they're like, it's only three more minutes. You could do anything for three minutes. It's kind of like right. that. I feel like because it gives you that extra boost, that extra energy to be like, OK, I will pull those documents out of my closet that I've been avoiding for 20 years and finally look through them and make sure that everything's the way it's supposed to be. You know, I will change that. You know, I will think of Morgan when I'm at the grocery store because she did tell me to stop, you know, thinking I can afford anything and everything when I go there and buying, you know, 700 dollar meats instead of, you know, maybe trying to look for the one that's on sale because it's really not in my budget. You know, it's like things like that where they think of us because of the things that we're helping them do. And also, and it's not just because of us. It's really because we've created that space and energy for them to have the fire within themselves to go out there and do it. Um, And I find that energy is the only way that we get things done, right? Like, 
I'm just as lazy as the next person if I don't have energy around doing something. But the second I get the fire in my belly to like, you know, go clean up what my kids have wrecked in my house or, you know, organize something in in my home or do some sort of financial decision for our family, right? I can't do any of that stuff if I also don't have energy. So there's no way for us to do that for clients unless we help them create that energy too. Yeah. Right. How do you feel about debt in general? And this obviously is a loaded question because there's, (laughs) there's, there's kind of two sides of this whole argument. And for the very the very simple way to kind of break it down in my, my my mind is there's the Dave Ramsey school of thought where debt is the enemy. You want to do everything you can to pay off every bit of it. And obviously he's talking about unsecured debt, credit cards, and even mortgages and auto loans and those things. And then there's the maybe rich dad, poor dad, Kiyosaki style where he's like, you know, that's great. All, you know, rich people get rich because they take out debt and they buy assets and they roll it over and they continue that into perpetuity and they keep, you know, just rolling this snowball bigger. And I yeah. know this is a question that obviously is different for different people, but how do you assess debt and what it's used for when you talk to your clients to kind of um, benefit the most people in general? Yeah, I'm somewhere in the middle. I would say that being on the extreme on either side is going to get people into trouble. Um, like, for instance, on the Dave Ramsey side, there's no reason for somebody with a 2.75% mortgage yes, to be paying this thing off early. Why would you do that, we're, right? We're, we're consistently walking around the firehouse, Morgan, and not that we're slinging fans, but we're like, <laughs> right. why, why are you that making that. extra payments on your house? Yeah. Like, we're, we want right. to encourage you know, uh, financial conservatism, but there, there are wise ways to allocate it and unwise mm-hmm. and especially with where things look like they're trending that's just asinine yeah yeah especially with inflation where it is i mean you're already making mm-hmm. a return just by not by just by paying it what they say you should pay every single month so there's that aspect of it then on the kiyosaki side it's like why are you taking on unnecessary debt if you don't need to right like i think that there's a sweet spot where you can evaluate whether or not that de- the debt makes sense i don't think that there's ever a situation where consumer debt makes sense i really don't i think that you need to if you're already in consumer debt that's another story that doesn't mean get into consumer debt more because you're already in consumer debt it means figure out yeah. a way to get out of it um but like you know everyone makes mistakes like don't you know knock yourself for it, pat yourself on the back, get back up, figure out a plan, right? Like that's the best way to handle that. But like, so consumer debt, definitely try not to get into that situation, pay off your credit card balances every single month. If you find that you're in getting in a situation where you can't pay off your credit card balance every month, then stop using a credit card, right? Like, I mean, that's really hard for people to do, especially in the day and age that we live in where everything is credit card based. But I mean, you're better off using a debit card, right? In that situation or creating an account where you move money to that account for spending and then using a debit card there if you don't want somebody potentially stealing your debit card and getting access to all your fiat. Um then there's the stuff in the middle, right? There's something like an education loan. Okay, well, now you have to evaluate whether or not that education loan is worth mm, it, right? Like what kind of return, hole. yeah, are you going to get on taking out this this loan here? So then you have to decide whether or not the degree is worth it. That gets a little bit more nuanced. I feel like, you know, people are always saying, oh, if you're not getting a tech degree or, or something in sciences, right, then you're not doing it right. But I think that you can be a little bit more selective about it. Like obviously don't get like a completely ridiculous useless degree, right? But you still need to evaluate whether or not that degree makes sense relative to the interest rate, your payments and so forth. Um, I don't like to see that payment on the other side being more than 10% of pre-tax income. So Mm. that's something that people can calculate of like, okay, hey, if my salary is going to be 50K coming out of school, like does it justify me taking $30,000 in loans? Yes or no. You have to do the math on your payment and so forth to decide. Um, 
I don't like people getting into those income-driven repayment programs either if they can avoid it because then your interest rate is compounding because you're not actually paying enough of the debt off. You're only paying off a portion of the interest. So now when you're getting into these like these government programs, you're basically having the interest also be compounded on new interest. So these loans can, can balloon and get out of control. And then you often owe taxes when the loan gets forgiven. So again, you have to do a lot of math to decide whether or not that's something that makes sense. Business loans, same thing, right? A business loan might make sense. Depends on what the business is. So it's one of those things, again, where you have to do a lot of math to, to figure out whether or not that kind of a loan makes sense. Right. Buying a home, I think that you need to think about it more about what the budget of the home is. We're, like Worry more about the budget of the home rather than the debt that you're taking on because mm. the budget is going to be more important. It's going to be the driver of your payments rather than being like, OK, is having mortgage debt good or bad? I don't know. It depends on what's going on in the location that you want to buy. Is it better to rent or buy in that location? Do you not care because there are aspects of home, home ownership that are more important to you? Or are you on the other side where renting is more important to you for whatever reason, right? I think evaluating it more as a consumer decision and looking at the budget is going to be way more important than looking at it from a debt point of view. Um, So those would be sort of my two cents on that sort of thing. The last one I would want to address would be Bitcoin backed loans. So a lot of people in our circles like to say, don't sell your Bitcoin, just borrow against it. And sometimes that makes sense, but a lot of the times it doesn't. Um, And so I think the best time to do that would be when you need a short term loan. A great example of a short-term loan would be like you owe taxes on April 15th, right? But you don't get paid till September. Yeah. Great time to borrow against your Bitcoin because you know that the cash flow is going to come through in September. You borrow in April, you pay off your taxes, right? You wait the three months or whatever, you know, and then you get the money and you pay off the loan. That's a kind of a great scenario for for that sort of a thing. When you're not exactly sure how long you're going to be floating this loan or if you're using it for consumer type. Um, expenses, then you get into a situation where, again, you have your interest compounding, you need to be paying that off. And it might be a budget issue at that point, And you might actually need to sell your Bitcoin in order to float that loan, which is not really the scenario that anyone not ideal, to not mm-hmm. one yeah. bit. All good insights. One thing I love about your book, uh, the quick start guide, and just the way you speak is I do enjoy and appreciate the metrics. Although they may be in some people's minds like shortcuts and heuristics saying 20% here, 10% there, whatever, you brought up the whole coaching thing a second ago. Like for coaches to coach teams that win, they have to run plays, uh, even if executed imperfectly. And a lot of people just don't even know how to play the game. So having these rules of thumb in their head is an incredibly uh, helpful launch point, or at least, at least like a guardrail. Like if you're mm-hmm. saying, Hey, your mortgage should be X percent of your gross income, let's say. And and they and someone plugs the math in and goes, Oh my God, it's twice the size of what Morgan recommended. It's it gives people it corrals people into some semblance of an idea of where to start, which I think is really important for people. Something you addressed a second ago, which I wanna pull the thread on, is budgeting. I've seen some tweets of yours on budgeting. I have a lot of thoughts on budgeting, having thought this through for I don't know, a while and then kind of tried to help people's uh, hold people's hand through the process of budgeting. Budgeting played a big part for me and my wife early on, but I'm aware of how cumbersome it can be. I'm also aware of the fact that even if it's a great idea, almost nobody does it. Mm. Like that's one of my main observations is just people don't do it. Uh, So and behavior and praxis are kind of the root of where we're going here. What's your opinion on budgeting? And for the person that's like, 
I just, I just have tried it six times and it doesn't work. It, it bogs me down too much. What's your thought for that individual and, and on that topic? Yeah, that's a great question. I think we should start with why people spend money and then we can go into the budgeting aspect of it. So we all have this innate desire to spend money in one way or another. Um, most people do, at least. Most people have this innate desire when they see something that's, you know, really beautiful in a window that they want to go and buy it. Or um, I'm using, I guess that's more of a feminine example. Or if a man sees like really cool tools, maybe you guys can fill in yep. what would be more appropriate there. Yeah, that yeah you're big like, wrench. Go yep, in there. Like yeah. wrenches. <laughs> I got to get that wrench, you know, and you see it and you're like, oh, yeah, that looks really good to me. Um, that There's aspects of our behavior where you can sort of see two sides of it. Um, and there's a good side of it and a bad side of it, right? So, so the good side of seeing something that's really kind of special and important can actually make you a better person, right? So like you see, for instance, like you see somebody doing a good behavior, and you can recognize, hey, that's a good behavior, much like, you know, a cool wrench in a shop window. That's a really good behavior. That's something I would like to mimic, right? That's sort of um, like innate in our in our being that we see these things over and over again, and we can spot what's really good for us to do and what's really bad for us to do. And it's the same. And so it it mimics, though, right, and seeing good behaviors with also seeing other things like things in shop windows and so forth. So you can take something that actually is good and could be possessed for good, and you can use it for good by like getting behaviors and other things that are good in your life in your life. Or you can take it to the other extreme where, you know, you go for excess spending or excess food or drugs or whatever it is that's your vice, right? You can take that to the other extreme where you do bad things. Um, I think that in a healthy person, right, there's a little bit of both, right, where you can spot a good thing and you make that part of your life. And then, you know, we're humans and we're flawed and we do bad, you know, we, we make flawed decisions. And so we'll also do the other aspect of it. The problem is when you get so caught up in the other aspect of it, right, where budgeting actually does come into play, so I would say that if you're sort of on the good side of things where you don't find yourself spending excessively, like the best thing to do is really do a budget, a backward looking budget of, okay, this is where my money went. That. Yep. Yeah, this is where it went. I'm objectively just looking at it. I can see where it went and everything looks okay. You know, maybe I could have made some tweaks here, but at least you have a good idea of where things went so that when you do go and make decisions in the future, you have that backward looking information in mind. Um, and then from there, what I would focus on is the savings rate rather than all the little things in the row. So if you're yes. saving like 20% or more of your pre-tax income, then who cares what you're spending? Right. Exactly. Right? Yes. You're doing the right thing. Why are you going to spend time budgeting? I think people get overstimulated or just intimidated by like, okay, everything, because most people aren't that type A where they want mm -hmm. everything just lined up and on an Excel spreadsheet. I know I'm not, I would much yeah. rather just say I'm saving 25%. And after that, I can do whatever I want with the rest of this money or yep. whatever yeah. that number is, because that just gives me the, I feel free to just enjoy the money. However I feel like. You know, totally. Or, or and, I, and I'm all for that, right? Like, especially if you as a family too, like if you know, okay, I've got this bucket and my husband or wife has this bucket that they can go spend money on and we're still saving 20 to 30% of our pre-tax income. Everything's yeah. cool. Nobody cares. It's when you're not in that situation. Um, once you're below that 20% of pre-tax income, that's when I actually do think it makes sense for you to budget and you do it as long as you need to until you're in a place where you're saving appropriately, right? Like nobody wants to be, it's like people who track their food, right? No one wants to track their food forever. Exactly. Right? That's like not a great scenario. But if you have 50 pounds to lose, maybe you track your food for a year and then you go and move on with your life, right? It's the yeah. same thing with your finances. You don't want to be budgeting maybe indefinitely. But if you know, okay, if I do this for the next six months to a year, I'm going to get in a situation where now I'm saving 20% or more of my pre-tax income and I don't have to do this anymore until I get back into a situation where I'm not doing that again. Sometimes I feel like this can become a sickness for people in the in the other direction as well. Like if you ever, you've, you've both have seen the FIRE community, like the 
retire mm-hmm. early community. And maybe five years ago, that was a huge thing. It was just invest yeah. everything in equities and like S&P 500, make sure you mind your expenses. And some of these people were going to such an extreme. I mean, I saw this guy's spreadsheet. He left it open publicly. So like, give you an idea of what he's doing. This guy was like talking about how, you know, what specific beans he was buying from what store. And he had broken it down to how much he paid for a bean per ounce. And protein was only from beans. His chicken was too expensive because he was going to retire five years earlier because of this. And I was like, this is insanity. I mean, yeah, Jesus. I'm with you on that. The, the, you, you, you analogize this to weight loss a second ago, Morgan. And I think it's a really good analogy because for somebody that's trying to move their way into a healthier lifestyle, you need to, you need to foster behaviors that are repeatable and sustainable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can think of people in my life that have embarked on grandiose, uh, new diet experiments where somebody's shipping tiny little boxes to their home and they do it for six weeks and they lose 30 pounds and they're super excited and you're sitting there going, there is no way that they're going to be doing this for the next 30 years. Yeah. So the same thing holds true for finance. Like if you're just slashing all sorts of things that you know that you need or enjoy to get things right sized, well, you've got to look bigger, whether that's increasing your income, whether that's Mm -hmm. slashing major expenses, like where, what you live in, where you live. I mean, I, I think of a story in my own life of a friend who who lives in a very expensive area who was expressing like, well, to buy a home here, you need to spend a million dollars. That's just is, is what it is. And my response was, well, then you can't live there. You either yeah. need to quadruple your income or you need to move because there is no way based on what you do for a living that you can afford a million dollar home, for example. So the key here is building sustainable habits that can be repeatable for decades because that's really how long this game needs to be played to be successful. Totally. Yeah. And you also hit the nail on the head when you talked about the large fixed expenses. So people like they get so tripped up when it comes to their homes, their cars, any other ancillary large fixed expenses that come up. Maybe you're a boating kind of person or something like that. Um, But people, they just, they don't think clearly about it. They think, okay, I'm going to live in this area and things cost this much in this area. And also I'm entitled to having a beautiful kitchen that's brand new with all the newest appliances and a hood over my stove. Um, And I also need to have 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 a certain, yeah, I have to have that. And I have to have guest space because people are going to come visit me. I have to have guest space and my kids can't share a room. How can my kids possibly share a room? That's just not right in this day and age. It's just like, you know, the list goes on and on. It's, you know, it's like endless and I need hardwood floors who you can't live without hardwood floors how can people live with carpet you know it's just you know and I hear this stuff all the time so it's like it's very easy for me to kind of roll this stuff off my tongue here but like do we all need to have these things like do all of our houses need to look like MTV cribs probably not you know like are your kids going to notice the difference between like their room being a 10 by 10 room and their room being a 12 by 12 room Probably not, right? In the grand nope. scheme of things. Is it okay for your kids to share a room? Yeah, it's okay for your kids to share a room. Can is it cheaper for you to get an Airbnb for your guests when they come? Yeah, it probably is, as opposed to you having like an extra thousand square feet for them and they only come once a year, right? These are sort of these kinds of things where if you just thought about it for a little bit instead of being on this emotional, I want that other thing, I noticed that pretty thing down there. Right. And that the, really the Airbnb kind of point. My, yeah. it, it, I always get I just think about people that have like second homes who you know, they're, they do pretty well, but like having a second home is such a massive expense and you're committed to that certain place. Like the amount of money you're spending on that, you could go on a hell of a vacation every year or a couple of hell of vacations every year, Airbnb, wherever you want. Like it just, 
it doesn't appeal to me at least just thinking about how how much expense comes with another home like that it's crazy yeah totally we've done the math for a lot of clients and it's like if you're you know how much vacation do you have time do you even have per year oh three weeks okay are you gonna spend all three weeks at your vacation home no definitely not we would want to take a trip somewhere else for your oh, okay how many um how much time are you gonna spend at your vacation home two weeks max then you do the nightly average rate and you're like, you could stay at a hotel for $1,375 a night. They're like, what? You know, <laughs> all of a sudden their eyes light up. They're like, oh, I'm going to go on a luxury vacation. I'm like, no, no, no. I was trying to make the point that this isn't in your budget, right? Like yeah. not to like go spend that money elsewhere. But yeah. <laughs> the, the thing that's a little frightening though is how long people can survive on this just in time cash flow. Like people that say, oh, I need this, this, and, and they're way overspending. They don't have free cash flow. They're not saving anything. They can maintain that through most of, a lot of them through most of their earning years. The problem is they're going to end up living in their parents' basement one day. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. it's, it's really hard to- Or worse in your kid's basement when you retire. Yeah. Exactly. That's, yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard to get people to zero in on the potential consequences that say you're talking to a 30 year old or 30, 40 years out in the future, but they're very real, very frightening consequences of poor money management. Another thought I wanted to double back to, and I'm kind of sitting here just digesting the simplicity, but the beauty of this foundation of launching off of that savings rate of say 20%, and it parlays into the debt conversation we have. That's a, that's a, that's a filter through which you can you know, uh, put debt as well. Like we were talking about budgeting, but also like a, a simple answer to you have too much debt is you don't have free cash flow, right? Mm -hmm. if, if you can evis, easily service debt and have free cash flow to invest, then all the power to you. If you can't, something needs to be cut and that may be payments, you know, but man, that's a great foundation to kind of filter everything through in my yeah. point, of, in my point of view. There was this TikTok that went around Twitter. I'm sure you saw it of the people with their car payments and they were all like car payments that were the size of mortgages in some places. Yeah. And they were actually bragging about, oh, my car, I pay $13.75 a month for my car. And you're just like, what are you doing? Um, so I would say cars also come into this as well. Really large fixed expenses in general, but like... I, we like to see all of home expenses be under 20%. So in all of home expenses, that's mortgage and interest. That's also your utilities. That's maintenance on your home. That's any HOA dues that you may have. That's your property taxes. So there's a lot that's bundled into that 20% number. People actually don't like to look at all the other things. They like to just look at mortgage and interest and they're yep. like, I'm good. Um, no, because like if you do mortgage and interest at 20%, you actually might still be at like 25 to 30% of pre-tax income if you didn't take into account all the other things. And then with cars, same thing. We like to keep that under 5%, but ideally we actually like to see around 3% of income. Um, really, honestly, if you're not a car person, you kind of have no business treating your car like something that's sort of a luxury. It's a thing that takes you from place to place and it yeah. needs to be viewed that way. Unless like your car is part of your most fulfilled life, we basically have people throw that out of their budget as something yeah, that- Cars single-handedly destroy financial futures. And yeah. they like are the said, equivalent it, of a dishwasher or a laundry machine. Like yeah. they're just something for utility, you know. Yeah, they, totally. They are a a poignant example of middle class folk thinking that they deserve an upper class lifestyle. And, mm -hmm. it, and like you said, if cars are your thing and that's where you want to zero in on your discretionary income, all the power to you. But you can't do the seven other things. Yep, exactly. Um, exactly. 
You talk in your book about these money scripts. I really like this part of your book. What are they? What are the most common ones? And what can we kind of take away from them? I know it's a pretty broad question, but thought it was a really interesting part of your book. Yeah. So a money script is something that generally we learn really young. It's sort of we see things happening around us or we see our parents interacting with money in a certain way or we're very influenced by another family member outside of our immediate circle or even a neighbor doing something or a friend's family doing something where we feel very inclined um, and we get kind of this memory that's imprinted on our brain of how we're going to interact with money as a result of that. Um, And so a very common one is actually like money status comes to mind for people being really common, um, especially because like maybe you grew up and your parents were kind of responsible with money, but you see somebody across the street who like dad has a really nice car and they've always got nice things and you go to their house and their toys are really nice, right? And it kind of gets imprinted on you that like they're better for some reason or another because they're spending more money and that's something that you want to have. So we internalize these money scripts uh, of a way of like us interacting with the world. Um, There's other aspects of it like money avoidance where people, they, you know, they probably experience something relatively traumatic um, in their earlier years regarding money. Um, And so instead of dealing with anything in their monetary life. Instead, what they do is like they kind of are an ostrich with their head in the sand. They're like, all right, like if I don't deal with it, then it doesn't exist and I don't have to worry about this thing. But then Mm -hmm. what ends up happening is like things pile up and so forth. Um, And then eventually like, you know, it's like kicking the can down the road and you have to deal with, you know, the roosters coming home type of a thing. So that's another aspect of it. Um, Money worship is another one where people like they, I mean, it really is what it sounds like, right? You're, you're worshiping money, but you're, you're worshiping it in a way that makes you feel better about yourself. Um, like it's, it kind of goes hand in hand with status. Um, but where you really think that like money is this, like will solve all of your problems type of a thing is money worship. Um, and for most people, that's just simply not true, right? There's a lot of things in these scripts that maybe there are certain aspects of it that ring relevant and true, but really truly at the end of the day, right. In order to have a healthy relationship with money, you kind of have to remove all of these scripts from your life. Um, there's also one where people are like very fastidious about their finances. Um, and sometimes that's a good thing. And sometimes you you can take that to a really broken, strange place where you're just like so obsessed with your finances. Mm-hmm. That's all you do. Um, and I think that people think that like the fastidiousness with money is actually a good thing. Um, but actually what it does is it hinders you from like really living the rest of your life in a, in a fulfilling yeah. way. Yeah. Most people I know, you know, with the exception of people like me who are weird and do this for a living, right? <laughs> they don't want to be spending all their time doing this. I also don't want to be spending all my time doing this, right? Like I have designed my practice such that I spend my time working. And when I'm done with work, I don't talk about this stuff anymore. And I go hang out with my family, right? Like, you know, so there's got to be a division between like when you stop worrying about money and when you start doing other aspects of your life. And if you're finding that that's creeping into a place where you're worrying about it all the time, then it's unhealthy and something that needs to be dealt with. Yeah, sure. there was a Dan and I had this conversation while we were on the ambulance this weekend about how there was a study done and off the top of my head. I can't remember what university, but it's basically a study on people who win the lottery and their level of happiness immediately afterwards is just massive. And it's just the, the worshiping money idea. And mm-hmm. um, they generally fall back to their baseline in less than a year. Everyone has this baseline, uh, you know, happiness versus sadness level that they are trend to. And no matter how much money you have, past a certain point, like the bare minimum that you need to survive. Clearly there just isn't an increment, you know, more of happiness you're going to have in the long term. It's just simply human nature to be back at your baseline of either miserable or happy or somewhere in between. You're not generally going to get changed by money. 
I think there is a temperament aspect to that for sure. Uh, there's a quote. I didn't come up with it. I wish I did, but it's money makes you more of who you are. Um, and I it's wish I that. could attribute it to the person, but yeah. Um, and it's true. Like if you're a happy person, money might make you a happier person. If you're an unhappy person, more money might actually make you more of an unhappy person. It's just like whoever you are, it gets expressed more mm. so with the amount of money that you have. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're like that forever, right? I mean, part of this stuff is our temperament, but we have the ability to change things about us over time, right? We're not stagnant. We're not exactly who we are when we were born. There are aspects of it that don't of us that don't change, but we do change over time, right? And so if you're finding that you're one of these people who no matter what, you know, it seems to need more and more and more and more, um, you can work on that aspect of your financial wherewithal to get yourself to a place where you feel content this a script that stands out to me in the bitcoin space is the money worship script um as bullish and excited as we are about the value propositions of bitcoin and what it represents for the world there are trolling bitcoin twitter you quickly realize there are a lot of people that spend probably way too much time thinking about this that are sort of fixated on this get rich quick monetary rapture sort of thing and have mm -hmm. all of their intellectual energy channeled towards this one, one thing and its performance. And I do appreciate people that are reminding all of us, like, you know, get outside, read a book that has nothing to do with Bitcoin. Um, if Bitcoin goes to zero, hopefully there's still plenty of contentment in your life. But that is one that stands out to me in this community because I think there are a lot of people that are clinging on to this for, you could say, the wrong reasons, hoping that this thing going to a million... I got a train coming here, folks. We've had acorns falling, cicadas. Um, but yeah, just that is where they're finding a lot of value and hope in life or the sole area where they're finding value and hope. we got to zoom out way beyond that, folks. This can be an important part of your journey, but it can't be the only thing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I feel like at the end of the day, I deal with clients quite often, especially in this life planning process where we cast a wide net on what's important. Yeah, like maybe something like Bitcoin would come up that's important, but it's not the only thing. Most people like there's really there's a category. There are five categories that are really important to people. It's family. It's spirituality. There's creativity. It's your community and it's your place in the world, right? So for some people, right, Bitcoin kind of falls into community because it's, it is their community. And maybe it also falls into place if you like you would this comes to mind, right, of Bitcoin Blue Collar podcast, right? Your place in the world is providing this as a service for people, right, in addition to all the other things that you do. But that's two of five, right? There's still family, spirit, spirituality and creativity. Um, and yeah, maybe you can say, OK, I'm creative in the Bitcoin space, too. But like, OK, now there's family and there's spirituality, right? There's still other aspects of your life. <laughs> Uh, Bitcoin arguably is filling the spirituality gap for some <laughs> folks. <laughs> I think that it shouldn't be, though, right? I yeah. guess that's kind of what I'm alluding to here, right? There, right. there are larger powers that work here. Um, and definitely not from yeah, the family Satoshi. regard. I mean, people sort of like, yeah, <laughs> people laugh at our family, right? Because they're like, oh, you're a Bitcoin family. But like, I mean, yeah, we talk about Bitcoin a lot in our household, but like, we don't only talk about Bitcoin, right? We've got kids, we've got responsibilities, we've got other family members, we're doing other things besides Bitcoin. Um, and like there are going to be really fulfilling aspects of your life that you will miss if you're too busy worrying about the money of the world. Right. Like I think that 
actually the fix the money, fix the world is actually like, it's a nice thing, right? Because if you fix the money, then you get to worry about all these other things. And we're already on the road to fixing the money, right? It's already happening. And I think that we can attest to that because we can't change the code, right? All we can do is run a node and buy some Bitcoin. And maybe we can give some educational content about it and help other people get introduced to it. But at the end of the day, nothing really that we do like majorly impacts what's going on in Bitcoin, right? It's it's got its own internal clock. It's, you know, everything is working on its own. It's got a monetary policy that you can't change. It's decentralized. No one party or anybody can go in and change it. So when you look at it from that perspective, all the things that we like about Bitcoin actually help you remove yourself to be able to go and do the other things that you want to do in your life. Hmm. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Well what said. are you what are you telling our th- clients right now about your thoughts on Bitcoin. Let's start high level and then we'll zero in on maybe some more specific stuff. But what is your take on, say, the last uh, six to 18 months in the space, where we are now, where you think we're going? Yeah. So conversations with clients can be very different depending on where they came in and their Bitcoin journey. So some people who are in my practice were not a Bitcoin person who came in. They were just wanted financial planning. So for those people, right, the conversations are going to look really different about what money is, why you might want to have a decentralized money, the purpose of money, because we've been so far removed from even holding money, right? Why you would even want to hold money um, instead of holding investments and so forth. On the other side of that are, you know, clients who've come in who already understand all of these aspects of Bitcoin and who are now looking for a little more deeper commentary about what's going on in the space. I mean, I think honestly, it's really interesting what's gone on. Um, and also like very telling that leverage is is always going to get washed out of the system, I guess. Um, and it doesn't matter how you do it. Vengeance. Mm-hmm. It's, it's yeah. gnarlier it's like, than even you expect. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You do it in the fiat world, it's going to get washed out. You do it in the Bitcoin world, it's going to get washed out as well. Right. And so um, I actually think that that's good news. Right. Because what it is showing is that fractional reserve banking is dead um, and it has been dead for some time. And people are going to try to resurrect it. And every time they try to resurrect it, we're going to say, hey, it's already dead. Why are you doing that? Um, and there's going to be a point at which people are like, OK, this really is truly dead. Um, I hope that that future comes sooner um, than it probably will. Um, but in the meantime, like, you know, people are going to get wrapped up in this and unfortunately get wrecked if they are getting themselves, you know, looking for yields, you know, and lending out their Bitcoin in situations where they shouldn't be doing that just to get an extra 5%. I mean, it seems crazy to me why you would lend out like the world's most pristine asset for 5% extra. But, you know, you do you, I guess, if you think that that's the right decision for your finances. Um I don't think that that's the right thing to do, right? So we're advising clients against doing things like that and just sort of showing like how liquidity is being removed from the system is a lot of what we've been talking about. But I mean, I I do see this as eventually being the world's reserve currency. Like that's where I think this is headed. Will that happen in my lifetime? I hope so, right? I mean, that's what we're all working towards. We all Um, hope so. Yeah. So on this topic, um, a lot of this obviously hangs its hat on the ruminations and the utterances from the Fed and kind of the macro econ background that's going on in the the next six to eight months. Do you have a view or perspective on where do you think the terminal rate is for the Fed at this moment? Like, where do you think this thing ends up? And if it ends up at the five to six percent range, what percent range do you think that maybe this could potentially be a problem for the national debt getting re-upped? rolled over at these new bond rates? I do think that they're going to wait as long as possible. 
because they are always slow to react. And also we've got midterm elections coming up and then there's going to be presidential elections. And unfortunately, these things are tied to that. Um, And I think that Unfortunately, that also means that the American public is going to feel the pain of additional inflation as we sort through these things. I don't like I see it as a scenario where they've got a bunch of problems, right? The first problem is that there's there's very high inflation, but there's also a lack of willingness to accept that there is it. There is high inflation. Like, for instance, there's that Biden interview <laughs> yeah, that just we, came we out. We were just <laughs> watching it last night at the firehouse, <laughs> cackling like hens, the two of us just laughing at this. Yeah. Like he's, uh, yeah. Anyway, I mean, yeah, it's like eight percent inflation doesn't mean that there's no inflation just because it went from eight to eight point one or yeah, whatever he said. It's fine. It's like, Don't worry about it. Yeah, it's like imagine. I'm like it's still compounding at a rate of eight percent, right? You do understand that. Yeah, um, I have no words to describe that segment. It's, it yeah. only went up, and he's like blinking a lot. Point one. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. like so there's really no inflation you're like eh, that's not actually how it works but i mean this um, is so- <laughs> a huge deal for us and our demographic right now like yeah we're for sure it. everyone we work with is feeling it it's very very real in our worlds right now. yeah <laughs> i mean we're feeling it too for yeah. sure and like i know i went to the grocery store and i'm used to my normal bill and when my normal bill was 25 percent higher it was, and it wasn't like I went out of my way to get different things. Like I went to the grocery store and bought, you know, around what I usually buy. And it was just like, it was 20% more than what I normally spend. Um, so I think that they have to balance the fact though, right. That there's inflation here, they've got massive debt. And then they also already, the dollar has been increasing, um, internationally. Right. And they're afraid also that like our exports won't be competitive if we continue to raise interest rates and the dollar gets stronger. I think what, what that means though, is that they're probably going to prioritize international national over domestic issues because it'll be an excuse for them to not have to raise rates because, oh, we won't be competitive and it'll slow down the economy. But meanwhile, people here are going to feel it. And I think at the point at which people are no longer willing to put up with it is going to be when they raise interest rates. Um, That's, I think, going to be late, though, unfortunately, and that we are all going to feel the pain of that also, unfortunately. So, um, yeah, I wish I had a good a better view on this honestly and it's a it's it's a yeah. tough question it really is the like nobody really place. knows and you know i don't i don't even think jerome powell has any has any no, idea he he's just winging either, it yeah. as well mm-hmm. so, so <laughs> where interest rates go i mean yeah you're probably right in like the six seven percent range possibly even eight percent but it is going to significantly affect our debt and also the u.s government did the biggest financial planning mistake you can possibly make which is they took on a lot of short-term debt because it was cheaper for them to do it, even though interest rates were at all-time lows, and right. they should have been issuing literally the longest debt that they could have possibly yes. issued. Yep. Yeah, they wouldn't have to be worrying about it rolling over so quick, and it'd be a totally different, totally different landscape. Although totally it does make it, landscape. it does make it a lot more entertaining and interesting to watch over the next six yeah. eight months. So. I do think so. Yeah. 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 In fairness to them, though, I think it probably would have been hard for them to offload some of these larger um, debt auctions um, with 30-year bonds because people weren't enough. that excited about buying it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is... We were listening, but we've been kind of diving into Zoltan Pozar recently, and he's just impressed upon the two of us in particular <laughs> how many treasuries are for sale. I mean, you think about quote unquote QT, even though it's in small quantities, you think about a lot of large international players kind of net divesting, thinking of China. Um, you think of how many they're going to need to continue to issue to say fund even just liabilities and deficits. Like there are going to be a lot of treasuries up for sale in the next yeah. decade. And who is going to buy them along exactly this line? It. Like 
what's your what's your thought? Let's go like beyond just a one year, two year. Mm-hmm. What's your holistic thought on bond allocations, fixed income allocations in a someone's say set it, forget it, or long term retirement portfolio? What do you, what are your thoughts there on what role they play, if any, and what cautions or advice you have there? Yeah, so. I love that question. We try to do something called asset liability matching, which means that you literally take the asset and you decide whether or not it's a short-term asset or a long-term asset, and you match it with the liability, which is the future expense that you're going to have. So if retirement is 30 years away, right, we would argue, okay, since you don't need this money for 30 years, you have no business having bonds, which is a short-term asset in a long-term style portfolio. That works really well when people are open to that. When risk tolerance comes into play and it's not so easy to just say, okay, well, you know, whatever you don't need for the next 20 to 50 years, we'll just put in stocks or Bitcoin, right? Um, When people can't stomach that kind of volatility, then Mm -hmm. we have to decide, okay, how are we going to allocate accordingly? Um, In that regard, we're still keeping bond duration very short because Mm -hmm. I have no idea what's going on. Yes. um, and so we're either doing like bond ladders where you're sort of locking in a yield and your things are rolling off and you're hoping that when yours roll off that you'll be able to invest in something with a higher interest rate in the future. That's the hope, at least if rising interest rates are happening or you're just putting it in some sort of very short duration fund. And as interest rates go up, yeah, you're going to take a little bit of a hit on that portfolio. But maybe at some point you could decide to roll into a higher duration if that's something that you want to do or is commensurate with your risk tolerance and expectations of what you want your portfolio to look like. But what I would say is that this kind of environment pushes people to the threshold of their risk tolerances. Um, And so as far as you're willing to go on that risk tolerance board, you should go. Um, Because like holding bonds right now is akin to basically, I mean, you're holding something that's smoking. It's on fire already, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and Dan and Josh haven't yet come with their fire hose, put it out. So I would say like, it's <laughs> really important. Yeah, yeah. We're going to let that one just smolder <laughs> out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I would keep that stuff to a minimum if you can, if you're in, if you're not in a situation where you can, then you might want to reconsider how you're doing it, like holding things in savings accounts and then balancing that out with like, you could do a savings account, and then you can also do like, you know, stocks and Bitcoin as part of your portfolio. You sure. can just sort of balance these things or do a combination of like short term bonds, savings account and stocks and Bitcoin. Right. And you can balance the way that you see fit. But I would never take Bitcoin and lend it out or borrow against or Yeah. Lend it out. Sorry. It would be the right term. Morgan, when it comes to retirement accounts like 401ks, 457s and, and similar accounts, I've always been of the mind that I don't really like to plow hundred like the max into there because I like to have money on hand for saving on the side for other opportunities that might arise. How do you view that or how do you answer that question when your clients like do I only have say twenty five thousand dollars a year that I can save. If I max mm-hmm. out this 401k I don't know what the max is right now, like eighteen or twenty thousand, that yes, pretty much 20, takes 000. all that money off my hands and it's it's now locked up for 30 years. I don't really like that idea. I like to have some optionality. How do you approach that? How would you answer that? Yeah, question? that's a really good question. Um, I would say at the very least, if you've got a match in these plans, oh, yeah, you should be sure. taking advantage of the match. Um, that's a hundred percent return, right? If you put one dollar yep. in and they give you a dollar, right? Right away you've got two dollars. That's a great return. So um, and a lot of these 401k plans at a minimum, they've got a four percent match. I would take advantage of that. Um, you can divide your savings. So you're like, okay, I'm gonna earmark 10% towards retirement. I'm gonna earmark 10% towards other things. That's how you maybe you wanna divide it up then you would just do 10% of your salary and that would go into your 401k plan. I don't think you have to max things out. I mean, also if you are a Bitcoiner, right? 
there is something you're giving up by putting money into these plans, right? If you do think Bitcoin is going to a million dollars a coin, right? Like the expected return you're going to have in in stocks and index funds in this plan, right? Might not necessarily make up for the fact that if you didn't take that tax deduction and you invested it outside what you would have if Bitcoin does go where you think it's going. So I would say like these plans are good for, yes, getting a tax deduction, also using it as a diversifier, yeah. Um, because mm-hmm. Bitcoiners tend to want to be 100% Bitcoin, but maybe it's a good thing that they have something in their plan helping them balance and diversify out a little bit. Um, and just balancing that with the needs of what you like. I would really do the math on what do I need for retirement? What do I need outside of retirement? And then balancing that as to how you allocate. What is your favorite Bitcoin proxy in tax advantage retirement accounts? For you, somebody comes Ooh, to you, they say, they say, Morgan, I have been socking maximums into two Roth IRAs and a 401k for 18 years. I'm sitting on $900,000 in these tax advantaged accounts. I do have some free cash flow, but most of my net worth is in retirement accounts in my home. I am insanely bullish on Bitcoin. I just finished the Bitcoin standard and I've, I've binge listened to every one of Preston's podcasts and I can't think about anything else. Um, but they don't want to take the hit on these accounts. What do you, what's the best proxy for that kind of person that's at Fidelity? Okay. Yeah. So if you're at Fidelity, let's say, and and you've got a hundred percent in these 401k type plans that let's address that second. The first thing is that if you've got Roth IRAs or individual retirement accounts in some regard, you can go somewhere like Unchained Capital Mm -hmm. and you can have a multi-sig IRA where you actually hold your own keys Mm -hmm. um, and you have the product through them. It's like a thousand dollar setup fee. And I think there's like a $300 annual fee to do it. Um, So I would say if you're going to do that, it probably makes sense to have at least 40 grand going over there to make the fees worth it. Um, But that's obviously the best proxy, right? Because now you hold, not only do you hold Bitcoin, but you hold your own keys um, in multi-sig and like it's the best possible way for you to hold Bitcoin. Yeah. Okay. In lieu of that, you don't have that, right? I don't have these Roth IRAs. And I'd be like, why don't you have a Roth IRA? I guess maybe Mm -hmm. that's another question. Um, (laughs) But no, I've got all this stuff in my 401k plans. um, And it's all locked up there because I've been working at the same employer for the last 20 years. I've never moved. I've never, yeah, I've got everything in one place and I have no ability to roll this over because I'm not leaving my employer at any time. Um, Then the question is, okay, do you have a self-directed portion of your IRA, right? Because if you don't have that, then no, you kind of can't do any of these things, right? The only way for you to be able to direct money into something that is Bitcoin tangential um, would be either through a self-directed portion or for you actually taking penalties and pulling money out of the IRA account, okay? So that's something also to consider. If you do have access to one of these self-directed accounts, now you have some investment products that you can choose from. Um, You could do a basket of miners would be one way to do it, right? But what you have to take into the account when you're looking at a basket of miners is that you're not just holding Bitcoin, right? You're holding a Bitcoin company that doesn't keep all of the Bitcoin that they mine, right? They've got expenses. They're not going to keep all of that Bitcoin on their balance sheet. And they are also an energy business, okay? So I feel like this is something that people forget. Oh, I'm just going to own the miners because yeah. they're a Bitcoin company. Okay, but they're also they're a, they're a Bitcoin company and they're an energy company and they have other line items on yeah. there that you need to worry about. And they trade so, like Bitcoin on meth. Yeah. Like in either direction. <laughs> and they could go belly up. This is <laughs> yep. the thing that's, I don't care how big they are and how cool they sound and how bullish Mike Alfred was on them. Like they could go belly up. And, yeah, uh, so and that's he would admit that consider. too. But that's the, it's, you got to, that's a risk 
factor that you're not getting when you're buying yeah. bare Bitcoin, you know? Uh-huh. Yep, for sure. So there's that. There's a micro strategy type of a company where they hold Bitcoin on their balance sheet, but right, that's not the only thing that micro strategy does. One of the reasons why micro strategy owns Bitcoin, and maybe Michael Saylor won't like to hear this from somebody like me, is because they actually don't really have the best business model. That's my opinion, right? Um, they need to own Bitcoin married. because, yeah. It, yeah. So um, that's kind of my... By the way, we talk about the Sailor Hail Mary. It's not popular <laughs> in the show, but we're okay. saying uh, you go all in on Bitcoin because you know that maybe MicroStrategy isn't quite as ironclad as uh, it's made out to be, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So when you're looking at something like that, right, you need to take that into account. I guess I should have prefaced this entire conversation with none of this is investment advice. I'm not advising on any specific Oh, don't worry. We have got an ad rule that says that. We got that. a nice yeah. disclaimer. Yeah, we'll okay. Okay. Okay, I can start singing the disclaimer here. But yeah, um, so there's there's that aspect of it. You can um, buy like a the Bitcoin ETF that's the futures ETF, right? If you're going to buy the Bitcoin futures ETF, you've got all sorts of other issues. I think people don't actually understand the extent to which they have issues. If you don't understand how futures trading works, then you have no business buying one of these. Um, futures can get contangled or backwarded um, when they're usually in contango. So what that means is that you pay to roll them. So if, it, if you the futures in that product are in contango, then basically not only are you paying a management fee on this, but you're paying every single month to roll these contracts over. If they get backwardated, then you actually get paid for owning it. So it would be in a in a backwardation situation, you would basically be owning Bitcoin with leverage and it would be to your benefit. But since backwardation doesn't happen as often as contango, you actually have something called drift on the product um, and you're basically paying a decay to own it. So mm. that's something that you need to understand when you're getting into these products. There, It's a futures option style product. So it's not something that people should take lightly or go into lightly. Um, GB, then GBTC. yeah, <laughs> just headed there. Yeah. yeah. So now you've got GBTC, which has all sorts of other issues. So GBTC was a private placement that started trading on the public market. So it became a, it started as a private placement, right? Because it was a an investment that was intended for accredited investors, and so accredited investors could get a net, net asset value. And because it was very difficult for people to buy Bitcoin in, let's say, a self directed four hundred one k, like we're talking about right now, people were going piling into GBTC and causing it to trade at a premium. So then what these high net worth investors were doing were they were getting in at NAV through the accredited investor um, area, and then they were holding it for the amount of days that they were required to hold it, and then they were selling it at a premium. A lot of people started doing this because they saw the premium going on. Um, It started to unwind, I want to say, during like in early 2021 when the market started turning. That's about right. It was like May. Yeah, or April April of May May. of 2021. Something like that. um, Because the trade stopped working out for these people. So there weren't people going in at NAV anymore, right? And there are now people selling it at a discount. um, And more and more people started to sell it at a discount. So now it's actually trading at a deep discount. It's not trading though at as deep of a discount as people think it is. So I think that this is the other thing that people don't take into account. They're like, oh, well, the price of Bitcoin is $19,000 a coin. So theoretically, this should be $19,000. No, this product's been around for a really long time and it has a 2% management fee on it. That needs to be taken into account when you're discussing the discount. So the discount is not as deep as people think that it is. It is still a discount. What is the discount roughly at? I haven't looked at it in quite a while. It's around 30 right now. 30? I think it's even, it might even be higher than that. Wow. Um, It's like 30 or 35%. Do you think, um, and obviously nobody knows where this is all going to go, but 30% discount in Bitcoin is pretty appetizing, even when you know you're going to be paying a 2% fee because effectively Mm -hmm. that fee is paid for the next 15 years. You know, even if this, you know, assuming this discount closes. 
Yeah, does the discount close? And but why wouldn't my, it? Is I guess the better question. So the discount can close in two ways. One, that trade comes back where people start coming back in at yep. NAV. Um, would be and maybe even a premium. Maybe and maybe all in a theoretical. To to, yeah, if and that's a big if. That's if other other places for people to buy Bitcoin don't become available. Right. Yes. Um, if like in my, my opinion, to interject here, if if we went parabolic again right now, we entered a mm-hmm. huge bull run. That that discount to NAV would disappear. There's not enough channels for people to, yes. to go. But if we have three spot ETFs in six years when the thing goes nuts, it may not disappear. It's right. But like, if yeah. we do have one of those, I mean, it will mm-hmm. very likely be one of those spot ETFs. Yeah. 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 So, so that's the other thing. It if, will close. The, if it becomes a right, spot ETF, then yes, it could close. Um, I also think that there will be fee compression on that thing at some point. Um, because right. even if the grows. discount to NAV does close from it becoming an ETF, it won't close all the way, right? Because there's going to be that drag in the fee that's been taking place over the years. So there really isn't a one-for-one Bitcoin in there like people think that there is because they've had to pay themselves a fee um, throughout the years. And I think this product came out in like 2014 or 2015 yeah. or so. So it's been around long enough where that discount might close by half, but not fully. Right. Morgan, let's talk about everybody's favorite topic. Let's uh let's talk about taxes yeah. here for a second. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Give us some I mean, I was pumped. This is the thing I've been most pumped to talk about. Whoop. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Give us some <laughs> give us some Bitcoin tax <laughs> advice. Well, what are what are some loopholes? What are some things we can do to advantage ourselves in our tax situation as Bitcoiners or just in general? Just for people that maybe have no idea, apprise them of how they can protect themselves from the 87,000 new IRS agents that are about to start <laughs> just kicking their doors down and dragging their wives out into the street. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'd start by trying to make it so you don't have to check that box on the 1040, right? The box that says that you've like uh, received, disposed, sold cryptocurrency anyway. If you're not selling, right, don't check that box. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not, that's number one. Uh, <laughs> number two, I would say it depends on what how you're earning money, right? If you're a business owner, things are going to look very different than if you're a W-2 employee. Um, the first thing that I would consider, which is actually just good advice for anybody, not just um, not just Bitcoiners, is something called the, um, the backdoor Roth. So either a Roth IRA or a backdoor Roth IRA. The Roth, I forget what the income limits are on it because they keep changing it, but I think it's like around 120K for single folks and around 240 maybe for married folks. So if you fall in that range where you can put money into a Roth IRA, you should do that because basically Basically, what you do is you take after-tax money, you put it directly into a Roth IRA, then you can go open an unchained capital IRA and you go buy your Bitcoin and you go on your merry way, right? And now you own your own keys, you're doing everything the way that you could be doing, and you're putting money into Never an account taxed. that isn't going to be taxed yet, ever in the Beautiful. future. So I would say, especially if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, where you're saving 20% of your pre-tax income, for sure you can find $6,000 for you or $12,000 for you and your spouse of that income to put into there, right? And if that's all you've got, right, if that's 20% of your pre-tax income. Okay. Maybe you want to decide how much you're going to do in there and so forth. But, um, but yeah, that is a really good way. Um, if you're over those income limits, there's something called the backdoor Roth. So the backdoor Roth is only really available to people who have money in 401k plans and not in IRA assets. So when I say IRA assets, I'm talking about a traditional IRA, a rollover IRA, a SEP IRA, or a simple IRA. So if you have money in any of those four accounts, Um, If you don't have an active SEP IRA plan, you can roll that into a 401k plan. If you have that, if you've got a traditional IRA, you can roll that into an active 401k plan to open this this backdoor Roth up, make it available to you. Um, But basically what you do, if you don't have money in any of those accounts, you open a traditional IRA, 
you put your $6,000 contribution into your $6,000 uh, into your IRA and then you convert it to a Roth IRA and now you've skirted the rules because basically what you did is you made a non-deductible IRA contribution because you're over the income limits. You're allowed to make an, a non-deductible IRA contribution and you're allowed to convert it. The reason why it's tax-free to convert it is because you don't have all this money in other in the IRA accounts convoluting what they call the aggregation rule of you converting it. So you're allowed to basically convert tax-free what you put into that traditional IRA to that Roth IRA. So I would highly recommend looking at that, especially if you're over the income limits, because now if you're saving 20% of your pre-tax income, right, and you're making $300,000 a year, right, now you've got $60,000 that you can allocate somewhere. I'm sure you can find $6,000 of that to go do this strategy, right? Like that's a slam dunk, I think, for people. So, and then again, you can go open that unchanged IRA and you're all good. Um, so that's something to consider. Um, tax loss harvesting. So there are trade-offs to this strategy. Um, I would say, especially in a bear market like right now, if you've been buying in dollar cost averaging, you probably have some losses on your Bitcoin. What you could do is you could select the ones that you have losses on. You could sell it and repurchase it. Um, you pay transaction fees in doing so. What you might want to consider is when you pay those transaction fees, you might want to replace that Bitcoin because the transaction fees thereby lower your stack. So if you're in a position where you actually can replace that Bitcoin and pay for those transaction fees out of cash flow, you should do so. Because otherwise, the give up is actually the amount of Bitcoin that you're that you're trading, um, in which case you're going to have a lower stack. And you probably you might feel like that $3,000 deduction that you took on your taxes wasn't worth it when you gave up a certain amount of Bitcoin later if the price has gone as high as everybody thinks it is. Um, so that's something to consider. The way tax loss harvesting works is that right now there's a loophole with Bitcoin where you can buy and sell same minute basically um, and take advantage of this loophole. Normally what it is is that you would sell an asset, you would wait 30 days and 30 or 31 days to get back into that asset. Um, mm -hmm. What you could do is sell an asset and buy something similar to it and that way you stay invested over the same 30 days. And then if you wanted to swap back in, you still would have to wait that 30 days to get back into that original asset. They are looking to close this loophole on Bitcoin and all digital assets, really. They haven't closed it yet, though. So I would say, I mean, this is probably good till the end of the year. I imagine it's going to like depend on who wins the house in the <laughs> in November about whether or not this stays open or not. Yeah. Um, but it is a good thing because let's say you took a $10,000 loss on your Bitcoin. You can deduct $3,000 per year. You can carry it forward and you can use that loss to, upset, to offset any gains that you might have in the future. So let's say in the first year you take the $3,000 loss. In the second year, now you have six, or in this example where we've done $10,000 a loss, you've got $7,000 left over. You could take another $3,000 loss, right? Now we've got $4,000 left over. If you had a $1,000 gain, in year three, you can use that $4,000 to offset that gain and also still take a $3,000 deduction, right? So this can go a long way to help you reduce your tax burden through the years. Um, so that's something else that I would consider for Bitcoiners. Um, but again, be aware of those transaction fees. Yeah. Yeah. Great I need a better tips. CPA. Mine told me you can't do that with Bitcoin. And I was like, I'm pretty sure you can, but I think he just has no balls. So that's <laughs> yeah. all it is. It does seem insane that that's still open. Um, yeah, it's crazy. It's definitely as you've already hinted at, it's definitely going to close. Yeah. And then you can sort of get into whether or not, okay, well, I can sell my Bitcoin and then I can go buy like some miners tangentially and hold those for a month and then get back into Bitcoin, right? You could still sort of do the same strategy. It's just, it's not going to be exactly Bitcoin that you would have to be out of for a month. So there's still ways around this where you buy MicroStrategy or you buy GBTC or any of these other things that we're talking about for that one month and then you get back into Bitcoin. Um, it's just not as clean as what's going on right now. Yeah. Man, some incredibly helpful 
fundamental takeaways from the convo today. Mm-hmm. We got to get you to snack time. And um, I think I'm burning out here, by the way. The sun is <laughs> late in the day, but it's, yeah, the squirrels uh, are plotting against you, man. You better. Yeah. yeah. You better get back. Morgan, home. We are going to have you back on because you are a wealth of practical knowledge. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, give our audience a handoff to you, uh, your firm and whatever else you want to say to close out here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Morgan with an E Rochard. If you think you'd be a good candidate to be interviewed for my new book about Bitcoin personal finance, please reach out to me so that we can make that happen. Um, my firm is Origin Wealth Advisors. It's originwa.com. If you need Bitcoin consulting, I'm at moneyowners.com. Um, and you can buy my book on Amazon. It's the quick start. I'm sorry, it's the personal finance quick start guide. Awesome. Thanks so much. Looking forward to that Bitcoin book tremendously. We need to get Thank her in you. touch with Frank, Josh. I think he'd be a good interview. <laughs> I don't think we, we should do. Absolutely should we do that to her? I don't know. Yeah, I kind of like Morgan. Maybe, maybe, yeah, we like you too much to do that. <laughs> um, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. We'll do it again sometime. See you later. Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And our email address is blue collar Bitcoin podcast at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB podcast. <laughs>